Thank you. May it please the court, my name is Lucian Gillum. I represent uh, Dr. DeCastro in a lawsuit against uh, Dr. Arthur. Uh, this is here on a motion uh, uh, to dismiss, uh, denial of motion to alter amend in various forms. Uh, and although there are three different lawsuits, it boils down to a breach of contract claim. Uh, and it boils down really to, to three issues. One, did Dr. DeCastro state a claim for a uh, breach of contract? Two, if he did not state a claim, for uh, breach of contract, should he have been allowed to amend? And three, uh, should the dismissal have been without prejudice rather than with prejudice? Um, Counsel, before you get started, I was wondering, is there a, anything in the record about uh, parole evidence as to the nature and content of the contract that you brought this action on um, outside the, the, the written did anyone offer to say, well, here was the deal, and that was what we were trying to put in the white writing? Um, other than the, the amended complaint and the complaint. Yeah, so I was going to ask about that. In a, there, there's, a a com there's Basically, this case never really got past uh, a 12B6 stage. Uh, at some point, doctor, uh, there was a motion for some reason. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. I apologize. Uh, this case never got past the... I know. Uh, 12B6 so there's stage. nothing. So, okay, that brings me to the second question. The the contract, written contracts executed in the sense of signed, I guess, that you offered with your amendment, was it different from the one that you brought your action on that you showed in the first place? <clears throat> well, I don't think it was. Let me put it this way. I don't. I think it was different, but not all the terms that. It was that, dramatically different. Well, you, the six hundred fifty thousand wasn't there. The one third wasn't. Nothing was there. You, it was it was irreconcilable compared to what was pled. Yes, but it did talk about basically. Part of this, I think, is that Doctor DeCastro had an understanding of what his contract was, which was six hundred and fifty, and that after that's, a year and a half. That's what I mean. You don't have anything like that in the record anywhere, right? Other than in the amended complaint, in the complaint as as pled. In the paragraphs in, in, in the complaint. Okay. Yes, six, you don't you don't see six fifty in the in any, the in, uh, in the contract that you want to replace the one that was in the Arthur case. Right. No, sir. Uh, there you don't see six fifty in that written document. Uh, but having said that, the breach. Nor, nor do you see any reference to a, 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 the a pro, percent of proceeds provision. Um. Well, what you see in terms of that is that um, um, Dr. DeCastro's salary will be determined just as Dr. Arthur and Dr. Pace's salaries. He will pay overhead expenses on a prorated basis determined by his proportion of the revenue generated by the clinic. What was the timing? I mean, everything's this was a this was a this was a five-year contract with some kind of a um, a trigger 
when when the with the two other clinics stopped paying their salary guarantees expired, and he would continue to be employed by Hot Springs Clinic, sharing the same way as the other physicians. Right? That's uh, what I read it. Yes, sir. It's basically. And how does that bear any any resemblance whatsoever to to the pleading in the in your compl initial complaint? Well, I think you know part of the issue is that people at times they sign documents and then they proceed. Well, let me in, let me in back a, up. One of my, my my one of my premises, and correct me if I'm wrong. Is the reason we have all this emphasis on um, a written contract is is the uh, statute of frauds? Uh, statute of limitations. Uh, well, how about the statute of frauds? Well, yes, sir. Uh, I mean, how, how are you ever are you ever going to get past past that with an or on a oral contract basis, given the time time lapse? Um, so therefore, you logically said, "I got to have a written contract." So you pled one, but you didn't have it. Well, and we do. That's why, that's why we're here today. <laughs> well, we do have a written contract. Uh, the not problem was is that our client could not find it. You, <laughs> you've never found it. Uh, well, I mean, we we did. He did find it and attach it to uh, a motion to alter amend that was that's fired late the, in the case. But that's not the same contract. Sir, I think part of what happened is they were proceeding um, basically they were paying him $650,000 a year every year between 2010 and 2017 and I think there was a verbal understanding in addition to this contract. Well, I'm not sure why you could. I don't know this, but maybe the statute of frauds doesn't apply to this contract. Well, it may not. Because, I mean, but So I don't know why you couldn't have brought the action on the verbal understanding. I don't know that you could have, but you've got two contracts now. Which one are we supposed to? I don't know. I'm sorry. That's the reason I asked the question. You know, yes, sir. I, uh, it is. Well, you know, okay. You've got a problem, all right? I understand you're in a difficulty. You don't have a... Really good answer. That's fine. It's an odd situation. Um, you know, we, we s submitted the contract that Dr. DeCastro found, and it was signed by Pace, Arthur, and DeCastro in 2010. Well, okay, let me ask you another question. Uh, yes, sir. If I may. Uh, did, you, uh, did you ever ask for an accounting? Uh, he, he did, yes, sir. And, and they just said no. Is that what happened? They, is this in the record or? That's in the. It's in the complaint. Yeah, okay. made the well, complaint. It's, sure. it's alleged he wasn't didn't provide it. Right. Yes, sir. That's correct. So one thing, one difficulty I have with the uh, opinion below is, and I'm, I think there are declarations to this effect in some of our cases and the Arkansas cases. But nevertheless, I question the statement that account is not a claim. But it's just a remedy. I mean, it is a claim. It's the, the, the duty to account gives rise, if there is a duty, the person who has that duty has to show, show the stuff. That is a claim. And then the remedy is if there's a balance, you get it. Right. That's the remedy. But the account is the claim. Yes, and sir. So 
what's the duty to account here? You know, usually that that arises out of some fiduciary arrangement, like a trustee or partner or something like this. This was not a partnership, right? It was. <laughs> well, it's a one-page agreement in which they uh, they were to be paying a, him. I thought it was, it was an employee. It was an employment contract, wasn't it? Right. Okay. Uh, and it, and it was basically, you know, he's to, you know, he's working as a doctor. He's doing a lot of procedures, billing, and basically his understanding was his production less one third of the overhead. Uh, the contract that we found, uh, Dr. Kent DeCastro found, uh, indicates it's um, um, he will pay overhead expenses on a prorated basis determined by his proportion of the revenue generated by the clinic. Can I ask you um, about, about that? So even if we get past the contract, uh, the, the written contract. Yes, sir. Um, I read your complaint, and it says, I just want to ask a couple questions. During the course of his employment with the defendants, plaintiff never received one dime more than a salary. What is the salary? Is it the 650 Because that wasn't it's clear. It's 650 yes, Okay, sir. so it's the six fifty. Um, but then it said, um, it, it also talked about the net, the net proceeds of the production less 33%. And then you say that they breached the agreement, and he was never paid a dime more. But my question for you is, how do we know, and this gets to the accounting question, how do we know that this formula, this 33%, actually would have been more than what he was actually paid, which is 650000 That is completely missing from the complaint. Well, and, and so I, I, that's going to be a multi-part answer. Okay. Uh, the first thing I would say is that um, we're entitled to favorable inferences and things of that nature. Now, typically the way these contracts work with doctors is that over time, they're building their practice. And over time, what's happening is as they get more referrals, more referral sources, more uh, patients uh, are performing more procedures, their revenue that they're producing increases. And so if he starts at 650 and he never gets above 650 and he's working and he's being productive, the inference is that something's wrong with how they're not how they're paying him, that they're basically not really doing this, your production, less your overhead. Now, that may be true, but the problem is if, is if your scenario is right, then he's actually received a windfall. And I don't understand what the breach is. In other words, he would be getting 650 and say that the net proceeds yields 400000 He would have a windfall unless the net proceeds actually exceed the salary he was paid. Right. And that's what we're saying is that with doctors, what typically happens is is, you know, your production in your first year, you know, if you have, you know, if you start with a panel of a thousand people and you're an FP doctor, uh, you're, you're not really making everything you can make as an FP doctor. But by the time you get up to 16, 1700 people two years later, your production is going to be significantly higher than it was. But how do we know if that's true here? Well, I mean, my, my problem is, is you didn't really plead damages, is, is, is the problem I'm having. That's what I'm getting at, is you didn't plead damages if if the salary is greater than the net proceeds formula. Yes, sir. And, and, and let me put it this way. What I would say is, one, I think we're entitled to the inferences that that's how things would have worked. But having said that, if you concluded that that is not how things work, the general rule in Arkansas is that amendments should be given freely unless there's a lot of delay. Um, 
you know, just repeated failure to amend properly, and none of those things existed here. We're in an early stage of the case. There was no prejudice to the defendant by allowing amendment that would be unfair in some way. There wasn't a lot of delay. This case lasted less than a year, and, and a lot of... Well, they, they couldn't plead the statute of limitations because there wasn't an inception pleaded. Well, they did plead the statute of limitations, well, but sir, the, the, and they argued. It couldn't be determined. Let me put it this way. On a Rule 12 motion. In the, if that's the case, we still get back to the issue of leave to amend should be granted freely. You know how unfavored those motions are considered in this in this circuit when they're at, when they're post judgment. Well, but what we're appealing I've probably is, authored five cases to that effect. Well, when we're we're not appealing just a motion to alter or amend under Rule fifty nine or sixty. We're also appealing the original denial of um, our original grant of the motion to dismiss. Well, that's to know. I'm addressing, they're different questions. And and so the next you, issue. You can't answer one by fleeing to the other. Well, I think that I can argue that uh, the Eighth Circuit generally favors a dismissal without prejudice. We've cited cases to that effect. That's not true. And. Um, I mean, it's it's often, we, we you know, we, we, that, that's that's a fifty-fifty proposition, basically. Okay. Well, and you know, the look, the court raised some questions about the complaint didn't answer these questions, and if you look at those questions, most of those were correctable issues from uh, the time that um, he left to uh, how exactly uh, you're concerned about overhead. And these were things that all could be fixed. It was early in the case. There would have been no prejudice. There was no undue delay. And dismissal should have either been without prejudice or amendment should have been allowed. Um, I'm down to a minute. I've got, so I'm let you I've got one more question. Yes, sir. Back to Judge, Judge Arnold's uh, concern about, uh, about the accounting issue. It seems to me that that... That concern, <clears throat> for me, that concern is eliminated by your client's failure to follow up on the district court's invitation to file a claim against the, uh, the Bank of Ozark's account. Um, well, I, to some degree, those claims had already been dismissed, Your Honor. And I can't, pardon? To some degree, those, I mean, the claim for an accounting had already been dismissed at that point. No, well, that wasn't clear. That's what you're arguing. It wasn't clear that she didn't. I mean, after your client failed to make a claim for the now disclosed funds, frankly, it's remarkable that, that your client didn't know about them since it was a checking account and he had signing privileges. But leave that, leave that aside. He doesn't file a claim when invited to do so. Now, there's a perp now the accounting claim is ripe to be dismissed on the merits. Well, but part of the part of the problem is that you know because you know there's a duty of good faith in fair dealing and contracts, and when you have an overhead uh, uh, production less overhead type agreement here, one of the implied duties there is that you're going to tell people what the overhead is, what the production. Well, the court is. didn't know that that's what the deal was because you couldn't infer, you couldn't decipher that from the complaint. Well, but there was a claim for a claim 
For but either the remedy or the claim. Number because we've been denied. We couldn't give a specific number because we've been denied. I'm, I'm addressing Judge Arnold's concern that that what that calling the accounting a, a not a, a remedy but not a claim I, that bothered me too. But that's cured, so to speak, by inviting your client before final final judgment to put in a claim against the account. Well, but how, for how much money? I mean, that, that's part of the problem is, is that by not by Just put a claim it, in. Now litigate it. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Mr. French. Good morning. May it please the court. I'm Nicholas French, appearing on behalf of the appellee, James Arthur, Dr. James Arthur. This court should uphold the decisions of the United States District Court for the Western District and its dismissal of appellant's claim with prejudice pursuant to Rule 12b-6 and its denial of appellant's um, Rule 59 motion and then its denial of appellant's Rule 60 motion and in the companion case, the dismissal of appellant's counterclaim pursuant to Rule 60. If you talk that product. fast, you might as well not be, you'll not be arguing. I apologize, Your Honor. Um, I, I think it may have been some initial nerves there. Um, the plaintiff failed to uh, allege sufficient facts which, taken as true, state a claim to relief that is plausible on its face. Um, the appellant failed, as um, this court was discussing earlier, to actually um, allege a contract. And when appellant did um, actually put a contract in before the court, that contract uh, did not contain any of the terms which were alleged in the amended complaint of the appellant. Um, the court found that the appellant only well, made... I guess, excuse me, I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I guess uh, even, even, if, uh, even if there's uh, no, there would be no prejudice shown by allowing the amendment, the amendment really doesn't, it's got a, it's got a proposed complaint attached to it, right? The, the motion, I mean. The Rule 59 motion. And uh, with this with this new contract in it, is that right? Yes, yes, Your Honor. So, so I guess what I'm working on is it, it doesn't really, it doesn't help because that contract itself is as infirm for the same reasons as the first one was. That's correct, Your so Honor. So that it's futile. That's correct. Okay, thank you. Uh, as it, was, it was a futile amendment um, as proposed, um, if, if that is what the appellant, plaintiff appellant was proposing as his amendment to his complaint. Also, it's a great surprise, too, because it's a whole different notion. Yes, Your Honor. Um, and on the, on the Rule 59 um, motion, those serve a limited function of correcting manifest errors of law or fact. Um, they're not to serve the purpose of tendering new legal theories or raise arguments which could have been offered or um, raise prior to You can't take Rule 59 by itself. Those post-judgment motions are always a combination of 59 and 60. Yes, sir. 60B. Um, and so we all, I mean, I don't know of any case where we haven't looked at both, both rules because they have different permutations. Um, and the appellant did raise a Rule 60B3 motion um, well, in that's, which, the one, that's the one that counts. Um, in which he alleged um, that the appellee um, engaged in a re misrepresentation 
or fraud um, by withholding the contract um, that he eventually, the plaintiff appellant, eventually put forth in his um, motion to alter amend. Um, well, but that, I mean, the district court said that was frivolous, right? Yes, Your Honor. All right, um, but what about, what about the new con, the new, the newly discovered contract as a basis for 60B relief? Um, the court said, um, incited this court saying that um, a plaintiff can't uh, meet the clear and convincing uh, standard of 60B3 by putting in or alleging that the defendant engaged in misrepresentation or fraud by withholding a document that the plaintiff was a party to. That, that, that doesn't re- answer the question. Your Honor? Well, that, the, the fraud has, that has the, the 60B3 has nothing to do with it. It's, I guess it's 60B6 or the newly discovered evidence subpart of 60B. I get them all mixed up. Um, the 60B3 was uh, misrepresentation or fraud, um, and that's what no, the... I, you mean that was the only basis for the 60 motion? As, as far as I'm aware, Your Honor, and I might be mistaken on that. Um, well, I, I, I guess I, uh, I, think even, a, I think a district judge would not confine it to that in this situation. Why, even it, why even. isn't the... You know, you can. Even Judge Arnold says that, that it's futile. Uh, even if it, so, it's newly discovered evidence, but it's futile because it's so dramatically different than the, what was alleged, and it doesn't solve the problems. Well, even if so, Your Honor, under six v six, I would say that it would not really. It wouldn't be newly discovered. The the plaintiff. Of course, had, it's newly discovered. The it's plaintiff had access to. Wait a minute! You just made a statement of fact. It's contrary to the motion. It was alleged to be newly discovered. The plaintiff had access to it the entire time by going through his own files. I thought the I thought the motion said it was discovered by counsel. The plaintiff had access to it if he had gone through his files. That's how it was ultimately discovered by the plaintiff. How do you know that? How does the district court know that? It was in the motion, Your Honor, that that it was discovered in his his files. um, That the counsel for the plaintiff. Got with an immigration attorney. That oh, well, now we're getting now we're getting way far afield of what of just looking in his file cabinet, right? Yes, Your Honor. So you you haven't explained why there was no abuse of discretion on the sixty B newly discovered. <clears throat> All you're doing is is asserting facts that aren't in the record or going to this fraud business. That was the, from what I understood, and I, I would have to address the 60B6. Um, I, I can't speak to the 60B6 right now, Your okay. Honor, but uh, the 60B3, from the gist of the motion, um, that's what I drew from it. Uh, from the plaintiff repeatedly alleging that the defendant engaged in misrepresentation or fraud, um, that is what I understood the motion to be constrained to. Where was the false denial of a written contract? Um, when all we'd had was a Rule 12b-6 decision. Um, the Was that chit-chat between the lawyers behind the scenes or what? The defendant denied that a written contract at at one point, the defendant denied that a written contract. In which case? Um, in the contract uh, case brought by 
the plaintiff against the defendant existed between the parties with the terms as alleged. Didn't you move pre-answer? I don't have the exact verbiage or where the statement appeared before me. My reaction was both briefs did a very poor job of giving us the procedural and factual background. And this is just confirming it. I apologize, Your Honor. No, no, you know, that's, but we have to play the hand we're dealt. Let me ask you about this. There's a appeal here from the contribution action, right? Yes, Your Honor. I wonder about that. That was dismissed. That complaint was dismissed without prejudice. Isn't that right? Yes, Your Honor. So I'm wondering, do we have jurisdiction over this? Sometimes we're a little bit skeptical about using that as a device to get a review, sort of because they might refile it. It might be refiled, rather. I wonder if you have a, this is a, I realize a question out of the blue because no one's raised a jurisdictional issue. Maybe there isn't one, but we have a duty, as you know, to look into that sua sponte. I wonder if you have any thoughts on it. If you don't, as I said, no one has raised the issue, and I may be being super cautious here on this. I actually, I don't have any thoughts on that, Your Honor. I apologize for that. Is there now a final order in the case that was started by your client? We, Dr. DeCastro's counterclaim was dismissed, pursuant to res judicata, and then our client voluntarily dismissed his claim, his complaint. Without prejudice? Without prejudice. And is that even on appeal? The dismissal of the counterclaim is on appeal. But that was not a final order, as you just explained. You folks, you took three cases and threw them in a pile, and then say, here, sort it out. So where was the, the contribution claim was the counterclaim, right? Contribution case was a separate case that involved a counterclaim. Your client suing for, or no, Pace, that was settlement of the Pace case. Yes, Your Honor. Yes, Your Honor. And then a fight between the two settling parties over who pays what. Yes, Your Honor. And that was where the counterclaim was dismissed. Yes, Your Honor. And how do we have jurisdiction over appealing that, which was a non-final order when it was entered? 
I'm not sure. Well, the judgment was entered because it was, the complaint was dismissed. The complaint right. was dismissed, yes, Your Honor. So an order was entered, a judgment, dismissing the complaint, right? Yes, yes, Your Honor. So that's the final, that's the order that you're appealing from, yeah. right? Uh, we're, we're not appealing, Your Honor. No, I'm sorry. No, but we, being, got, we, got being, rule, we got Rule 54. That's being appealed from. Yeah, yes, Your Honor. So my question was, that was... That was without prejudice, right? That dismissal. Isn't that right? I'm, I'm pretty sure it is. Let's, I believe let's, so, Your Honor. But if, when, when it was entered, the counterclaim dismissal, if there wasn't a Rule 54B determination, then it wouldn't, it, even if it was entered as a judgment, it wasn't a final order. Because we still had the main claim, your client's claim. So then that gets dismissed without prejudice. But everybody seems to think that's not on appeal. The only appeal is from the counterclaim dismissal. This just makes, I know. I understand why the district court struggled with this procedurally. Your honors, um, on I'd just like to conclude with um, the district court did not abuse its discretion in denying appellant's um, motions under Rule 59 and 60. Um, and for the foregoing reasons, I'd ask that this court affirm the decisions of the Western District of Arkansas. Thank you. Thank you. I'll give you a minute to respond for rebuttal, Mr. Gillum. Sir, um, I think so. My client sued Dr. Arthur in the Eastern District of Arkansas. Counsel, I'm sorry, I can't. My client sued, uh, just going to the issues you were just raising, just to try to provide an explanation. My client sued DeCastro, or Dr. Arthur in Arkansas, uh, Eastern District of Arkansas. Their client, Arthur, sued DeCastro in Garland County, got removed to the Western District of Arkansas. That was the claim for contribution. My client at that time raised a counterclaim, which was also his original claims. The counterclaim, which is also his original claims, I mean, the same thing was dismissed with prejudice and that's what we're appealing after that counterclaim of dr de castro was dismissed with prejudice they then moved to dismiss their claim for contribution okay, but how do, without how do we have jurisdiction over the over the over the um, partial final order well i think it's final as to our 
clients on that particular case. Now, having said that, there are two other cases. That's why that we you have Rule 54B. You're supposed to go to the district court and get a, get a determination that's appropriate to enter a final order with respect to less than all the claims or all the parties. Yes, sir. But in any event, I think you would have jurisdiction over the other original case. Well, and were they... Okay, when the, when the, when the bank interpleaded the funds... Then that your your case went to the Western District. That's correct, sir. Were they but were they consolidated? Uh, we moved to consolidate them. That motion was denied. Uh, but we did move to consolidate them. Yes, sir. Now did did Judge Judge Hickey decide both? Uh, she yes. Did she dismiss, yes, yes, sir. Did she dismiss the counterclaim in one case? She, yes, sir. That's correct. And then dismissed your. Um, original claim before that, I think. Okay. Uh, apologize for the confusion. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Case has been thoroughly briefed and uh, arguments been uh, at least uh, cl some clarification, I think considerable, and we appreciate that. Thank you, we'll Mark. take it under advisement. Thank you.